0: Hello and welcome to GC Stories, the podcast where we speak to security services professionals with an extraordinary tale to tell. My name is John Watkins, the editor of Global Custodian. And in this series, we've got custody, prime brokerage, all sorts of banking executives who have stories to tell from former undercover police officers to ex-professional athletes. These truly are fascinating stories. And those who are telling them also have some amazing wisdom to impart. Particularly in times like this, I think it never hurts to listen to something inspirational and uplifting. I hope as many people listen to this while running, cooking or in their downtime as they do during their working day. Now before we get started, I'd just like to thank our partners in this project, Smartstream, the provider of transaction processing solutions and services to the financial community. They have been incredibly supportive of this series, just as they have with their own clients through this difficult period with the global pandemic. Their own story is one of stepping up when they needed to, reacting fast, being reliable, making sure their customers were prioritized during this period. So big well done to Smartstream for informing and supporting the industry during this time, and of course, for their support of this series too. On today's episode, we have Andrew Pitts Tucker, now Managing Director, Apex ESG Ratings and Advisory, who after 25 years in financial services, made the move of a lifetime out of the sector to focus on his passion for wildlife conservation in Africa. Through charities and work on the ground for three years, this is a tale of following your passion, your dreams, and making a real difference. From face-offs with poachers to applying lessons learned from financial services to helping animals, Andrew takes us on his journey and provides some advice for anyone with a similar dream of following their passion mid-career. And now to the episode. We hope you enjoy our conversation with Andrew
1: Pittucker. tucker Andrew Pittucker, tucker welcome to the podcast. Thanks, John. Pleasure to be here. Um, I hope I can keep uh, some of your audience interested. <laughs> I'm absolutely
0: sure you will do. And uh, Andy, I'm, I'm, on that note, I'm I'm so excited for you to tell your story today. And, and this all stemmed from a uh, chat we were having about ESG recently, which is a huge topic, as you know, for the industry. Uh, and then you kind of casually dropped in your background of working in Africa on these, uh, quite frankly, incredible projects. And I think it became abundantly clear that your story is, is one worth telling. And it, it seems to be one of uh, following your passion. And then, thankfully for the, the rest of the world, that passion has got wider benefits for you know, the, the, like I said, the world and wildlife in Africa, which is uh, a, a great combination. So yeah, I think your story really is going to be a, a great one for our audience.
1: Well, that's very kind. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm incredibly lucky. It, it all fell into place really over the course of my um o- over the course of my life from start to finish. So we'll we'll go into a little bit of that um over the course of the next uh, half hour, forty five minutes, and uh, hope, hopefully uh, we'll give the uh, the audience a a chance to see how it was all all sort of put together, albeit very much unplanned. You wait now, there will be a, over an hour podcast, and that will just be a
0: testament to how interesting this story is. Uh, proven wrong
1: there.
0: And Andy, where are you uh, speaking to us from today? Whereabouts are
1: you based? Um, I'm based in the UK, so uh, we are about halfway between London and the South Coast. So we, we sit in uh, a little village called Ewhurst, which is uh, close to the, the Surrey uh, Sussex border. Um, it's a fantastic day, beautiful weather. Um, it's an amazing time of year and everything looks very, uh, very green and crisp. So uh, yeah, I count myself very, very lucky. Um, I have a number of, of colleagues who uh, are up in town and uh, are less fortunate with the outdoor space. And I think uh, with everything going on at the moment, it's it's tough for so many people. So I do have to pinch myself every now and again and, and realise how, how lucky I am uh, along with my family. So um, yeah, it's, uh, it's wonderful. Yeah, and then yeah, so it might be a
0: shock for everyone that thinks that everyone in the UK uh, lives in London. I'm sure not many of our listeners would have heard of U-Hurst, To be fair, Sorry, U-Hurst, yeah. <laughs> To be fair, Andy, exactly. so even I don't know it. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a great spot. Well, look, um, Andy, let's let's get into it. Um, you know, like I said, uh, the. This story is is kind of one uh, of you following your, your passion. So can I just ask myself, so start by asking, you know, where did it come from? Where did this interest in African wildlife and conservation, where did where did it stem from? If we can go back a bit in time
1: a little bit here. Sure. Uh, well, we, we have to go back many years. I'm I'm uh, I'm nodding on 50, uh, but if I rewind the clock, almost 50 years, uh, I was very lucky uh, in my upbringing, and I was brought up. Uh, On a farm on the top of Exmoor, uh, down in southwest, a fantastic farm backed out uh, onto the moorland, and really we were we were surrounded by the wilderness. We were surrounded by wildlife, and I think it sort of became just part of me. There was little knowledge of Africa at this point, and in fact, Africa hadn't featured in in um, in any of my my family's history, Uh, and it wasn't really until I was about 15 years old, and a great friend from school invited me to this country called Zimbabwe, which I'd barely heard of. Uh, And I leapt at the chance. I was always very, very envious when I was at school uh, of all these uh, children who were heading off at the end of term back to these wonderfully exotic named places like Hong Kong and Zimbabwe and Kenya. Um, And I was tooting back to the farm, which was about four miles away, albeit also fantastic and i just had this sort of deep down desire to to see what some of these places were like so so when my uh, my my buddy um, offered me the chance to go to zimbabwe i spoke to my parents and they were incredibly supportive and said you know go go do it um and so i went off to zimbabwe for about 3 weeks and while we were there my my eyes were were just massively opened to to africa would like go around a lot of the national parks in zimbabwe um, I saw all the the major wildlife. I had my sort of my first uh, elephant, rhino, lion encounters uh, while over there. Um, and because we were driving around, we were going through the villages. We were seeing the, the communities. Mm-hmm. We were seeing the colours, the noises, the smells. I, it, it just it just got under my skin. It's a, it's quite a cliche. And you can speak to a lot of people um, who have had a similar experience with regards to Africa. Uh, but it was really at that point that I decided that my life was in some shape or form always going to be involved with Africa. Uh, when I left school a, a few years later, um, I spent a year there traveling around with a with a couple of buddies. Um, and again, we we traveled from, um, from Kenya down through Tanzania all the way down to South Africa, though not through Namibia. We we just had some fabulous experiences. Um, people, wildlife, um, landscapes. And so it it was really over the course of those years that I think uh, the passion for Africa and its wildlife got sort of drilled into me. Um, And it never really went away. Um, I I parked it on occasions while I focused on my career, but uh, it was certainly in the early years, really, that uh, it it got under my skin. So the interest was established there. At what point did you see, okay, there's some things here that need to be changed for the better? And yeah, you know, maybe I can have an impact on that. I went. To, I actually ended up going to university and studying biology. And as part of my degree, I did quite a chunk of of conservation. Um, admittedly, most of that was focused on uh, UK conservation, but it, a lot of it was, uh, was the, the same sort of themes. Um, so yeah, I ended up uh, moving into the world of commodities, and conservation sort of got parked for a bit while I focused it, focused on my career. But it wasn't long before it came back, and I took my wife to Zimbabwe uh for her first her first experience to africa and we had uh, we had one of those sort of life changing uh experiences really uh which was was very unintended uh We were staying in this this beautiful camp on the shore shores of lake kariba uh, it was in a place called batusa donna national park, and the camp was quite famous for these three little bull elephants which used to come and uh, feed with of uh, sundown a time and they were very very tame and Orbit. they would just stand around the campfire and be part of the gang anyway the following day we were out uh we were out in the bush we were tracking lion actually um and the guide who was looking after us got a radio message uh saying you've got to come back quick something terrible's happened so we whizzed back to camp um there's one other couple staying there and the elephant had been attacked by poachers and one of them had been killed, and the other one had had its um, tusk shot off. And anyway, we were ushered back to our uh, back to our tents and told to stay put. And as the uh, as the afternoon and evening unraveled, so the story sort of came out. Um, and eventually, the guy who was looking after us said, "Look, guys, we've we've had this huge issue. It's very sad. You are your your guests here, your clients. You you shouldn't be exposed to this." And I said, "Well, look, we are exposed to it. What do you want us to do about it?" Um, he said, "Well, look, I would like your help." Um, he said, the one thing you could do is, uh, can you catalog this, this moment? Can you, can you come and take some photos for me? And then when you get back to the UK, can you make sure they, uh, they get into the right hands? And I said, yeah, b- absolutely. I'll come and I'll do that. And so my, my wife and I, um, we got up very early the next morning and just, just as uh, it was getting light, um, he took us to where the elephant, uh, had been killed. And it was the most horrific scene. This, this huge bull elephant was lying there, uh, semi-skinned. Um, its tusks had been hacked off but were still there interestingly Um, and the pool of of blood around this elephant was about 40 foot um, and it was a a horrific uh, grisly sight and anyway while we were there the poachers came back to collect the ivory Um, and it was very clear who the poachers were Uh, they raised their rifles our guard raised his rifle and eventually our guard said have you got some photos uh, and I said yes, we've we've got a few. At which point the the poachers were shouting um, in uh, in you know their, their local language to um, you know to move away. At which point our guide said go. So um, my wife and I we we grabbed the camera, ran back to our Land Rover, and we we still had an extra night in that camp, but we we went um, and uh, you know we disappeared. We got out of the game park, but it was a very nerve wracking moment. Um, and anyway, he subsequently got in touch with us, and we, we provided those photos to some authorities in the UK um, who were, were using them to build up a bit of a, um, a bit of a picture as to what was going on in Zimbabwe at the time. Um, it was in the, it was in the Mugabe era um, and he was basically um, enabling his park wardens to go and uh, collect ivory in order to fund I think uh, what you'd call um, uh, sort of non-legal. Uh, Activities overseas, so it was it was a very very interesting time, and it 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 really hit home um, as to uh, what was going on in Africa and uh, and and how dangerous the place was, uh, but also how the wildlife was was massively at threat, Um, and that just stayed with me all the way through my career. Um, It was only in two thousand and eight that I got to a point in my career that I really wanted to do something more than just my work, and that I wanted to really get involved uh, with my passion which was um, African wildlife and so I sort of searched out for a charity uh, or an organisation to join forces with um, and I came across uh, Tusk. Um, Tusk Trust is a, is a UK based charity, it's a fantastic charity that focuses on protecting the natural heritage of Africa um, and from my point of view the excitement of, of being involved with and, and protecting the endangered species but it does it in a fascinating way, it does it through uh, supporting local communities and uh, and local schools, um, and working with them to appreciate uh, the wildlife and and getting them to uh, protect the wildlife, which I think is is the only way to do it. But it was really through Tusk um, that I started to learn about the real issues going on uh, in Africa, and it's not just the the poaching, but it's the the much deeper issues that result in uh, the poaching, um, and. Behind that, of course, is funding. And if you want to protect areas, if you want to protect wildlife, and so on, uh, from uh, from poaching and and all those uh, activities around that, you have to have money. And I think the problem for for conservation is it's always been viewed as a a donor funded uh, asset class, if you want to call it that. And, you know, I just felt... While I was at Deutsche Bank and uh, I was heavily, heavily engaged in the financial services that, you know, maybe really there was an opportunity where the financial services um, could start to view conservation as something different from just a donor funded asset class. And, you know, maybe there's a way of of turning it into an asset class, which which one could invest in. And so we could actually get greater sums of money uh, flowing into conservation for the for the great and good of, of, of people and. Um, and the wildlife. God, I mean, that
0: story about the elephants. I mean, that's absolutely gross. To you telling that story? I mean, it's the first time I've heard it, and just yeah, it makes you, you know, it makes you, it gives you goosebumps. It really is, and uh, in the, in the way you kind of tell it, and the imagery, and then the standoff. I mean, that is, uh, that's quite an experience, and you can see how your interests uh, at a young age, and then that experience, uh, you know, shapes uh, what you were going to do in the, in the future. And I think this is why. This is why I'm really happy we're doing this podcast because you know we all uh, you know, communicate with each other and network in, in a business sense, but then behind people, all these incredible experiences and stories that uh, you know might get told uh, occasionally, but to tell it to a wider audience is is great, and I'm, I'm really glad we're doing doing that here. So, Andy, I guess I go to that moment that you talked about. Okay, I, I'm on the board of, of and now. Um, maybe there's a, a, another step and something else I can do. So, was there? Uh, kind of switch moment where you decided to to um you know leave financial services and do something full time was was there a um, a moment that it happened or if there wasn't if you can't pinpoint that exact moment, how did the transition happen
1: over uh, over you know months or years well yeah as mentioned just now that there there was certainly a build up um in uh, i guess a build up in my knowledge and a build up in my list and I can potentially um put my skills to use. The courage to break, um, and so sometimes you need a little push. Uh, and and uh, Deutsche was a fantastic uh, employer, can't knock them at all, and they allowed me my my time um, in the world of conservation. They were they were very keen for me to um, to work with Tusk and develop that relationship. So for them, I'm, I'm very grateful. But we came to a head in about 2016, where I had sort of had enough. Um, it was a, a suitable time for me to take a step down. Um, and so uh, we parted company very, very amicably, and they were incredibly supportive of what I was doing. Um, a- at that time, the only thing I knew is that uh, I-, I wanted to get involved in conservation. I didn't really know what that meant and how I was going to do it. I knew I wasn't going to work uh, for someone like Tusk. I didn't have the skills to be out there on the ground working with those incredible people who put collars on elephants and all that sort of stuff. You know, I didn't have that uh, that sort of experience. In fact, I had no experience. In conservation whatsoever, my only experience was in in the financial um, financial markets, of which I've been involved in for nearly 25 years. So, um, we, it, yeah, that it, it was an interesting time. It was quite nerve wracking, but also incredibly exciting that I was sort of about to get into this um, into this new world, and uh, I had no idea where it was going to take me. I would say it was a build up um, over the course of a few years, and then ultimately. Uh, when that little push came, which everyone needs in life sometimes, it just took me to that point where I it, it allowed me to make my decision.
0: Yeah, and and yeah, you know, from from that decision, I've got so many questions about what happened next because obviously you've had all this experience and then the build up and then, okay, you're gonna put yourself out there. So, yeah, what happened next? What was the aim? You know, how did you kind of combine it with your life back home? And uh, we, I guess, you were all in at this point, weren't you, when you decided to leave Deutsche Bank?
1: Yeah, basically. I mean, suddenly the secure, I mean, I'd been I'd been in full time employment since pretty much leaving university, and then suddenly after twenty four years, I had three kids at school. Uh, suddenly, I wasn't, and so there was a there's a, a sense of sort of trepidation um, about the whole uh, about the whole moment. And I can still remember that it was, as I say, it was quite nerve wracking, but also incredibly exciting. Um, so the first thing I had to do was to work out how on earth I was going to get myself into conservation, bearing in mind I had no credentials, like a biology degree, which at this point was was nearly 30 years old, um, and no doubt plants have moved on considerably. Um, and I just I just went out and I I met I met everybody everybody who you can possibly imagine. Um, Tusk were were fantastic. Um, Charlie Mayhew, who is the the CEO and founder of Tusk, was a great support um, and really backed uh, what I was doing. Um, and opened up lots of doors, and I, I just I just met a huge amount of people in in all areas of of African conservation. Um, and I left in I left in June, um, had about three or four months of of really going out and and meeting people, going to events, and immersing myself in 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 conservation and trying to understand the problems. And then I had this great opportunity in September uh, to go to Kenya for a couple of weeks, and I joined um, a, a a trip with a company called Conservation Capital, um, which is a, a, an organization um, set up by a guy called Giles Davis, uh, based in in Kenya, and he invited me to join a trip which um, which they were uh, they were making around uh, around Kenya um, to showcase how um, businesses in uh, conservation areas were able to generate income. And potentially be recognized as interesting investment opportunities uh, for international private sector uh, money and, and high net worth individuals um, and in um, investing in these businesses you are inherently um, helping local communities uh, prosper and you are benefiting the landscapes and the wildlife as well and I, I love the idea of this trip so I, I went along um, and it was it was incredible. Again, it was another one of those life changes. Uh, for the, the first week, we were down in the Masai Mara and we were working on this cattle project. The, the region is just one of the most beautiful places on earth. Uh, but the problem it's got is it's being struck down by overgrazing. Um, there's, well, when I was there, there were in excess of 24,000 um, community-owned cattle grazing in this area. And at night, they were drifting out of their um, allowed grazing zones and going into the national park and of course that that's just decimating the, the grasslands for the wildlife um, and what I learned from the conservation capital team is that if, if something wasn't done about this that entire ecosystem could just disappear in a matter of years and in fact there's a there's a, a region within the the Mara conservancies um, called Pardamat which we visited. Now, Pardamat is, is um, it's a, a conservancy uh, or a region within the conservancies that doesn't have the same or didn't have the same status as the others. And so it was a little lawless when it came to grazing. And it was extraordinary. It was like a dust bowl. And you could drive through one conservancy and you'd see grassland. You'd then hit pardamat and it would be dust. And it was just, it was a horrifying, horrifying sight. And it made, it made me really understand that you know, if this is what the future is, that would be an, an incredible failure um, of of all of us. And so we worked with the owners of the of the cattle, uh, the herdsmen, uh, the elders from from the various uh, villages and conservancies, and we ran a couple of workshops about how they could start to think about their herds um, as businesses, and you know maybe uh, with the right sort of breeding i bringing new um, new types of um, uh, of cattle uh, breed into the mix you could increase the size of your cattle you could reduce the herd size you could make your marketing you can make your business more efficient and actually you could make more money even though you were decreasing uh, the size of your herds significantly um, and this was a tough thing because actually cattle is 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 a an incredible passion and in some cases religion to a lot of communities so it's not just a case of um yeah this is this is business it's so much more than business to, to a lot of communities but you know it was it was a fascinating discussion and it made me realize that actually i there was a way that i could apply some of my business credentials and acumen uh, to some of these some of these problems because um where there is just a business issue and it's about how to market that it's about how to take your product to market have you got the ability to uh, to, to take it international and, and so on? And I, you know, I had the ability to help in, in those sort of areas. Um, so that was a that was an incredible moment for me, actually. And it, I, I think that was one of the cementing points that I realised that I could actually put my my financial knowledge um, to some form of use, uh, working with um, local communities, protected areas, wildlife conservancies. Um, in, in in helping them recognize themselves as business opportunities yeah there's there's an element of uh, destiny there isn't there really Andy?
0: if if you kind of bind to and believe that
1: you know i i've also often thought about how i ended up in this situation and and it my my life has been incredibly unplanned I've, I've sort of got to a junction and thought which feels right left or right and i've i've taken that route um this this passion has definitely taken me in a direction and then and then doors have just Opened up because there is an inherent need for help, support uh, from from passionate people. Um, um, but I think most importantly, is passionate people who've also got something to offer. Uh, and and that was I think that's absolutely crucial. You can be involved in conservation. You don't have to be a conservation expert. You can have a skill set and something. You can be a lawyer, and if you're prepared to go and help these organisations with your legal hat on, you know you can do something incredibly powerful in the world of Uh, of conservation by being a lawyer so i think for you know there's a lot of people out there um, a lot of the younger generation who are desperately keen to get involved in this world of conservation or protecting the environment and you know i i I often say to them go and learn your trade it doesn't have to be in conservation Uh, there's very few who are lucky enough to to kick off life in conservation and stay with that all the way through but go and learn your trade go and become that accountant be that lawyer learn it and then you've actually got something you can take into the world of conservation to make it a better place and, and do people and we're going to come on to this uh, later how you kind of took some time out and
0: then returned to the industry but is it something people can help with on a part-time basis
1: as well as you know, you know, quitting their job and, and going and, and doing it full-time i still do it now so I, I, I'm, you mentioned that i've 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 gone back to financial services um i guess for the record i don't i necessarily view it as going back i view it as the next stage in the uh the evolving world of w- what is my life if that makes sense but yeah it's you know it's 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 interesting i i don't view um i don't view the, the leap that i have taken out of the financial world into the world of conservation and then how that's taken um how that's taken a turn and i've sort of ended uh, up back in, that, in the financial services, but still focusing on my passion. Again, it, it, it goes back to what I was saying earlier uh, taking that left or right turn. Nothing was planned. I've ended up back here, but sort of doing what I want to do. I'm still living my passion and I'm, I'm, I'm living that moment. Well, look, no, this is,
0: uh, I think it's
1: just a really great message
0: for anyone considering, even if it's not uh, conservation, it could be uh, any kind of passion that, that the two things co- can kind of coexist and then you can even integrate them to. A, as well at, at some point so let's um let's go back to that that timeline then so yeah you've gone out there you've had these experiences and then a couple of uh the other weeks in kenya what was what
1: was what was your next move um and what did you learn from that initial work what what well, i think the main thing i learned that there was a gap uh there was a gap between conservation projects on the ground uh, and uh and funding um, and that funding gap was what I felt I could help with. Um, as mentioned, I think the general view is that conservation is a donor funded area. Um, I became quite focused on trying to develop uh, a new asset class in the form of conservation. And I certainly wasn't alone. The likes of Conservation Capital have been working on this for, um for and I really coin the phrase, conservation. Um, enterprise, but they've been focused on this for for some time. But the one thing uh, I felt I had was contacts in the financial world who ran private equity funds, private debt funds, who ran hedge funds, who maybe they would be interested in in looking at a structure which uh, focuses on uh, on conservation, uh, if it had Um, positive returns and if it had the the standardized sort of framework around it that they were used to maybe that would work so I sort of embarked on that initiative to see whether or not we could get some um, some interest going and you know I was very lucky um, and that through all my sort of networking and just going out and generally pestering people um, a a guy called Oliver Withers uh, got in touch with me who is a fantastic character and Oliver um, was running a um, a project uh, called the Rhino Impact uh, Bond uh, project, and and what he was doing, he was being funded by various entities, and he was trying to create a structure which was going to disrupt uh, the donor funding, um, and 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 try and do something different, uh, and very much on the lines of what I was thinking, and so he asked me to join his project team, and and basically what we did is we tried to piece together a structure whereby we could really disrupt the way traditional money had been flowing into conservation, come up with something different. Um, And the idea was was relatively straightforward. It was the idea was to issue a bond Um, by issuing the bond, um, the private sector, traditional private sector bond buyers would um, would buy a piece of that bond. Um, And with that money, we would put it directly to work in protecting the species. And in this instance, um, as it says in the title, it was rhino. Um, the reason why we went for rhino is because they're very, um, the, the um, we have very clear science on rhino. We know how many there are, uh, we know where they are. Probably any other any other species. Because the idea was we would go uh, we set up a, a vehicle, uh, we'd issue a bond, uh, with cash that we raised, we would go out and we would increase very specific populations of rhinos. So that would be those would be the KPIs. Have we increased? Um, the number of rhino, have we reduced the number of poaching incidents? Um, and then, if all those answers were uh, were positive, uh, the the uh, bond owners would get uh, a coupon. They'd also get their money back. Um, now, where does that money come from? You may ask, because if you're investing in conservation, uh, it doesn't inherently make money. So the idea was you would have an outcomes sponsor um, that could be one of the the big. World Bank, or one of the big, sort of uh, huge national organizations, um, who historically put money every year into various forms of conservation um, and then hope that the projects work um, and that there's positive outcomes. So, the idea here is that the private sector, by buying the bond, is actually funding the work and taking the product risk. And only once that has proven to be successful and you've seen the increase in Rhino. Does that entity that has historically funded um, does that entity then pay out as the outcomes pair and make good uh, the notional um, and the coupons uh, to the uh, to the bond buyers? So it was a really interesting project, and for me it was absolutely fascinating because I was thinking my with my financial head, uh, but I was also uh, engaged with the most incredible rhino scientists on this planet, because we also had to build the credentials around this, and you can't just take people's money and, and not have an incredibly rigorous way of spending it. And so these rhino scientists were putting together all the models and were looking at all, looking for all the locations of where uh, the prime sites were across Africa to to put this money to work. So that that was that was probably the the first consultancy. Uh, role that I took on. And it was as a result of that that I ended up setting up a PT conservation, which was sort of me and me and myself alone um, as my, my consultancy, um, but decided to sort of push myself out there um, and start to do more of this.
0: Yeah, it's also interesting. I, I was going to ask, how do you wish you'd done this sooner? But uh, what your story has told us is that almost every you know, step of your life and every experience you had in, in financial services kind of you equipped you with the skills to be able to do this great work uh, later on, so um, I guess yeah, it was it was the perfect time, wasn't it, uh, for you? And, and and obviously we talked a, a bit about the um, yeah the work you were doing there. Uh, was there that yeah you were saying about um, yeah, when you were younger that the, the passion developed? Was was that kind of bond with with Africa and the people
1: and the wildlife also kind of developing at the same time as you were out there? I mean the main the main reason why is because i was I, I was engaging with uh the the people the local communities the wildlife experts in a different way i was i was suddenly working with them and when you go out there I, I was i was very lucky in in my early uh, sort of early days of engagement with uh with the charity tusk um i went out on on various trips um with with the charity with with Charlie Mayhew and we visited um organizations but i was visiting as a as a donor uh, and uh you are viewed like a guest. You're treated like a guest, and so you, you although you get to see some of the things which are ha- which are happening behind the scenes, you probably don't get to see all of them. Um, whereas when you're going out there and you can say, yeah, I'm PT conservation, and this is what I do, you become part of that team, and you're you're sitting around a table, and you're discussing the real issues and you're seeing reports of when the bullets flew you're seeing reports of um a, he got shot two weeks ago he's just coming out of hospital he's recovering um, and so you you suddenly i don't know you just build up a, a, a different level of bonding with some of these characters and, and you get to hear the real stories um and um, and the, the levels of respect suddenly go up uh massively because you realize you're, you're dealing with people who are who are you know they're putting themselves in the firing line to to protect natural uh natural heritage so without a doubt your relationships change um with these guys um and you know men and women and, and you know they're fantastic people
0: yeah i mean it essentially sounds like a war out there doesn't it
1: yeah it it certainly is at times there's different different uh different times and different places it's uh... It's terrific, and I don't think that's fully recognised yet. I mean, you have you have the likes of of Prince William who are huge champions in in this whole area. But you know, the, the Rangers really are the protectors of our planet. They are they're the guys out there. Um, you know, the, the the men and women are putting themselves out there, 24 hours a day, to client. So uh, they do it. They do a huge amount.
0: So what? Uh um i mean you you mentioned a lot of kind of eye-opening moments already uh and and especially in those kind of initial visits um during your time uh, after setting up pt conservation is there any other kind of standout experiences uh,
1: that, that you would like to share with us today if you are able to live your passion as i did for those three years i was incredibly lucky and had some fantastic trips Um, I guess one moment which was which was a bit of a standout for me and I I can't I can't tell you that I learned uh, lessons and things from it but it was one of those wonderful moments and one of those dreams that I always wanted to um, uh, to sort of live Um, and I was down in a place called Save Valley which is down in southeast uh, Zimbabwe and I was on a a trip with Tusk actually with Charlie Mayhew Um, and we were we were with the um, we were with the rangers um uh, chatting, chatting about the wildlife and he said well look tomorrow I'm going to go and uh, I need to go and track some uh track our wild dog and our rhino and we need to go out with the radio monitors and see if we can find them uh, would you like to come and I said well I, uh, you know for me that was an absolute dream um what I wasn't quite prepared for um when he said okay well look, I'll, I'll come and pick you up at sort of 4 30 in the morning just before it gets light <laughs> uh, I wasn't quite prepared for the fact that we were going to go out on a micro light um, and I was basically going to be sitting uh, on an engine, holding a radio transmitter for a couple of hours. <laughs> um, and uh, and and literally, we turned up this little dirt strip, and there was a micro light. Um, anyway, we we took off um, as it was getting light, and we flew around me holding the uh, me holding the radio antenna, uh, looking for wild dog, uh, looking for the rhino, and we found them. Um, and it was incredible. I was We've got about another half hour of fuel. Anything else? You know, anything else you want to do? And I said, well, while I'm up here, I'd love to see if we could see some vultures. And he said, okay, well, let's let's have a look. So we we circle around for a bit, and sure enough, we uh, we came across some vultures circling. We were probably at two thousand feet, and I I just remember we were we were floating along with vultures, and they were looking at us left and right as if to say, what on earth are you? And I remember <laughs> looking looking right and seeing this thing probably. 30 40 foot away just gliding along at the same speed that we were going and it was just one of those incredibly sort of wonderful moments um and sort of makes it all makes it all worthwhile but um but yeah so that was one of that was one of those very sort of touching moments um i had i had plenty of moments which probably taught me a lot of uh taught me a lot of lessons like my you know zimbabwe moment with the with the um poached elephant but um that was a very special moment no incredible and uh yeah it must have been so many
0: stories and experiences i just thought i'd
1: Ask for that one, and uh,
0: yeah, certainly a, a moment where you're at one with nature. There, yeah, that was great. What did uh, what did people back home and ex-colleagues say? Uh, obviously, they they knew you'd made the transition, but uh, but over those years, I mean, what what did people say about the work you were doing and and, and that kind of life you
1: were living? Incredibly supportive, actually, and I think uh, for for a lot of people, giving giving it up um, and pursuing your passion is is, some, is something you all is something you dream of doing. And actually, it's, it's blooming hard to do. And as I say, I, you know, for me, um, it required a little bit of a nudge. Um, and you know, I had the options at that point of of going left or going right. I decided to to give it up and and go into conservation. And I think for a lot of people, they don't have that opportunity. Um, I think for a lot of people, uh, the strength of the passion might not be there, uh, but also that little nudge uh, at, at the perfect time um, is something that is not often there. And you know, it's so easy to get. Uh, I I use the word stuck I don't really mean that but it it gets stuck a career path and before you know it you're 25 30 40 years into it which is no bad thing at all Um, but I guess for me um, because this moment happened uh, around 25 years I was incredibly lucky and I think people were I think people were very envious about about the fact that I was um, I was able to do it for for all the various reasons and uh, were incredibly supportive and very, very keen to know what I was doing. Always want to hear the stories. I'm sure I bore the socks off my, with, with my tales of, um, uh, tales of Africa when we sit around a dinner party. And I, I was actually very careful about not always talking about it. But the problem was when people say, "What did you, what did you do last week?" and you say, "Well, I was actually in Namibia uh, tracking rhinos," go, uh, suddenly the whole, the whole table stops and they want to hear it. And you sort of think, "Oh God, here we go again." Um, you know you, don't, you don't, you're not doing it because you want to be that um sort of center of conversation but it it's interesting and i think it, it 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 sparks a sort of a deep down interest in everybody and so yeah my 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 friend's family were all incredibly supportive um of the of the whole thing actually yeah hey, I'm sure the trips to
0: Africa would be uh you know weekend visits to garden centers in terms of uh dinner dinner party stories so <laughs> i'm sure they were they were lucky to be around and enjoy the insights. Uh, um, Now, Andrew, I'm kind of going to transition, and like you said, it was not so much going back into financial services, it was kind of, uh, you know, the whole journey has been linked in some ways. And i found it quite funny that you were working with these uh, Apex Predators over in uh, in Africa, and uh, now your current role uh, comes from a company called Apex Group, which I'm sure a lot of our uh, listeners are familiar with. So, uh, how did that transition happen?
1: Well, it's interesting. Um I, I was doing some uh, PT conservation was very much up and running and I was doing consultancy work in Africa. Um, and a gentleman called Peter Hughes got in touch with me, who I would met via uh, a friend many years ago. Um, he got in touch with me and said, um, I'd like to talk about some conservation work uh, in Africa. And so I, I, this was at a point that I was uh, I wasn't turning down any meetings and I, I, I leapt at it. And I went and met Peter up in London. He said, this is what I want to do. Um, and in a nutshell, it was develop um, a developer conservation uh, project somewhere in Africa. Uh, he's very passionate about the environment and in particular, uh, African conservation. And um, we we were we were quite like minded in that sense. And so he asked me if I would if I would do some work for him. And so I I consulted and I helped him sort of home in on um, the part of Africa, which would which would suit uh, his project. He was really passionate about uh, cheetah and, and rhino. And ultimately found uh, an area of land which he was able to engage with, uh, which is a fantastic um, area in South Africa called um, the lapalala Wilderness. And over the course of a couple of years, um, Peter built a lodge uh, which is open to the public. Um, and the idea is that you go and stay there and you get an incredibly um, uh, focused uh, holiday, a focused holiday on, on the wildlife that's there. Um, you engage with the um, environmentalists and the conservationists. And it's it's in, it's incredibly involved. Um, all the profits from uh, from staying at the lodge go back into the uh, the conservancy, um, to the communities and to wildlife research. And I I just love the whole idea about what he wanted to do. So I worked with him. I'm Very lucky. I worked with him for a couple of years in developing this whole project. And at the end of it, he said, "So what are you doing now?" And I said, "Well, I'd love to do you know, more of this. This is this is what it's all about. It's about bringing private sector money into conservation, establishing businesses which help communities and." Um, wildlife and and so on. Um, He said, well, I've got this idea. He said, this is is great, but, you know, we're helping out one little area. Um, I run this company called Apex, which is a substantial financial services company. I want to set up an entity within it. um, uh, And I want to set up an an ESG rating product. The idea being that uh, it'll it'll help investors um, collect data, uh, rate That data and all this is all ESG, so environmental, social, and governance data um, on their underlying uh, portfolios. And we decided he he had decided to focus on um, the private uh, the private market world. So the idea was investors in private companies uh, could use this tool to to collect the ESG data on those underlying companies um, in order to learn how those private companies were doing. Um, in their move towards, um, you know, helping people and planet, and by collecting that data, it would allow the investors to, to to make much clearer decisions with regards their engagement with those companies to make them better companies. And so I, I love the whole idea of this that um, that I could sort of I could take uh, my my 24 odd years, 25 years of of financial market knowledge um combined with my my sort of last three, four, five, six years, whatever we call it, of environmental and conservation knowledge and potentially packages this all up, um, and provide a, a service to help the broad uh, sector of financial services, um, in its in its um, attempts to do its part in protecting the planets and uh, making it a better place for people as well. And so um I just had I thought about it for probably no more than a weekend and I said, Yeah, let's do it. So um um, you know a month or so later there I was working at uh, working at apex setting up apex esG ratings
0: yeah, it seems like a fit in uh,
1: into that 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 chapter uh, and and
0: leaning on from what you just said there, you use the word i think responsibility. do you think the financial services world and, and I know they kind of have adopted this now, but do you see them having this responsibility to to make the world a better place and are you seeing it?
1: uh the answer is yes and the answer is yes they have a huge responsibility and as you say um they are they are you know significantly embarking on this um uh on this journey at the moment um it's been led from you know right from the top so uh, y- yes they have a huge responsibility and and they are beginning to play their part significantly um, and you know what we're doing with an apex as a financial services provider is a is a small part in that whole in that whole movement. So yes, they they most definitely have a responsibility, and we're we're definitely seeing um, a progress. I mean the the investor uh, investment managers now they are all talking about ESG. Uh, you there's not many conferences you go to where ESG is no longer a topic. Uh, and it's i you know I like to think it's for the right reasons it's 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 not just about collecting data, so I can show my uh, my investor that I'm doing the right thing. It's collecting data so I can actually make better and more informed decisions um with regards to my investments to make them better for people on the planet uh, and I think look it's been it's been driven by it's been been driven by us we you know ultimately we're the people who invest money into. Um, pension funds and um, in, insurance, uh, for example, uh, we want to make money, but we also don't want to. The movement is only picking up in pace. Uh, I'm, I, I'm, very happy to sacrifice a small amount in order uh, that the, um, the the investments are made in the right way, and I think that's that's the idea, which is really um, a key driver here. Uh, and at the same time, you've got Coming from, coming from the top, you've got the regulatory pressures, which are significantly beginning to build up um, in pace. Um, I wouldn't say they are applied in, in any shape or form yet to the private company sector. But, you know, it's happening and it's going to only continue, as I say, to pick up in pace. Um, and so, yeah, it's um, the responsibility is, is well known and uh and i'd say that the the pace is is only picking up
0: yeah certainly a
1: trend we can we can
0: see and uh, obviously andrew we uh Andy, we uh, we did we chatted about this for uh, for a feature that's coming out in global custodians uh, summer magazine so for, for a bit more information and update on uh, on the sgc at, at the moment uh, our listeners can check that out um i'm going to i'm going to wrap this up by asking uh three questions that we're going to ask to every guest on on this series so i'll start off with who, from within
1: your working life and
0: financial services, has inspired
1: you? Well, that's a really good question. Um, there's two characters, really. Uh, when I left university and I knew I wanted to um, sort of get into the city, uh, a great friend of mine, his his father, Mike Davis, he was running the Africa division for a company called Cargill. Um, I'd met Mike, obviously, quite a few times when I went and stayed with my, my buddy Lloyd. And uh, Mike was sort of everything that I felt. You needed to be if you wanted to be a successful businessman. Um, he was, uh, he, you know, he was passionate about Africa. Um, he was focused on his job. He was, a, he was immaculate, and I just thought, I, I, I want to be what he is. Um, and actually, very kindly, he then introduced me um, to another gentleman called David, Pace, who ran a particular entity uh, within Cargill. Um, who I went and had a job interview for um and I got the job and my, my interview consisted of an hour and I think we talked about Africa for about 55 minutes of it um and we just we we struck a chord but David Pierce was a he was a great character uh very inspirational um you know my career path all the way through Deutsche Bank um was uh was in some shape or form involved with him uh we also did a couple of trips to Africa uh we climbed uh, Kilimanjaro uh, together and actually that was with Mike Davis and and his son as well. We climbed Kilimanjaro together, and he just knew how to get the most out of everything. um I remember we we took kite. uh I doubt many people think about doing, this but we took kites up Kilimanjaro and we flew kites at the top of Kilimanjaro, and it was just one of those fabulous experiences. And he he seemed to he seemed to create so much enthusiasm and passion in everything he did. But I, I followed him through my uh, my eight years at at Cargill and then I followed him to Deutsche Bank. Um, so yeah between Mike Davison and, and David Pierce they they were definitely inspirational in my uh, um, in my sort of financial services uh, career. Where has inspiration from outside of your professional life come from? Well I think as as mentioned right at the beginning being brought up on a farm uh, um, on the the, the wonderful um, area that is Exmoor National Park you know my parents my brother I, I you know I interacted with all of this with them. Um, throughout my life they have been fantastically supportive my brother's also in the in the financial markets and so he he was a he was always a major source of inspiration as well um, but when it comes to wildlife uh, african wildlife specifically i think i have to give the gold medal to charlie mayhew um, who's the founder of of tusk and the and the current ceo um, he, he's an incredible character he he effectively gave up his life to do the, the conservation full- time and I think that's that that's an incredible sacrifice and you know what he's done with tusk over the course of the last um when it's 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 about time his 30th anniversary uh, is it's quite incredible and it started off as a a small uh, passion of his and now it's you know tusk trust is a incredibly well known charity it's got um uh, Prince William leading the charge as um as the royal patron uh and he was the one who really uh, introduced me to so many of the fantastic things, but also the issues that that the um, the natural heritage of Africa is facing so so charlie um, yeah he was he was one of the big reasons why um, i I had the confidence um, i suppose to leave the the financial markets and, and take a leap into the world of conservation yeah,
0: and, and Andy, my final question is uh, what's the biggest life lesson you've learned that you would like to pass on to
1: others I mean for a lot of people who are starting out in life don't you, know, you don't have to rush into doing um, exactly exactly what you think is the right thing to do. Um, be prepared to take a bit of a risk. It doesn't matter if you turn left when um, you know maybe maybe turning right is is an easier path. And what what do I mean by that? I mean I, although I said I although I said I, I wanted to go into the city. If someone had offered, if someone at the same time had offered me a job in uh, in Africa uh, working with rhino, I probably would have left it. That wasn't there. I ended up going down this path of working in financial markets, which had at uh, the early days nothing to do with Africa. Um, but I learned I learned my trade, and as I mentioned previously, you know, go and go and go and learn your trade. Don't don't rush um, trying to combine your passion uh, with your working life. I mean, it's taken me twenty twenty five years, um, and actually, uh, as you said, John, every single piece of my career has evolved in the next chapter. I know that sounds sort of obvious, but it's as a result of working at Deutsche Bank and getting involved with TUS that I was able ultimately to leave and all the contacts. It was going through leaving and getting involved in conservation that I met Peter Hughes and that my role at Apex, um, you know, came came to surface. So you know, I've sort of ended up going full circle, and I'm now actually uh, putting a bit of my um, my degree in biology and conservation to use bizarrely. Um, so you know, I I just think it's really important that people. Um, go and learn their trade. They don't have to don't have to rush life, um, and and also be truthful yourself. Don't don't try and be something different. I mean, I never, I never tried to impress upon anybody that I was an expert in conservation. Um, I was very clear to people. I'm passionate about it. I've got zero credentials, but I can do this, and 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 then see what comes your way. Um so I think a combination of all of that if that makes sense if I was going to uh, sit down and and, and talk to some people who are who are trying to embark on um, a career path at the moment, um you don't have to leap into it now it'll come if you're passionate about passionate enough about it it will come your way
0: Yeah fantastic insight there and words of wisdom Andy I I really appreciate that the come the come com- com- Conversation. If I use conservation and conversation into too many times next to each other, it's going to uh, result in a tongue twister. But um, so fantastic conversation about conservation today, and uh, you know, for anyone that like myself that wasn't uh, didn't know a lot about wildlife and conservation before this podcast, this has been a, a fantastic chat, um, an insight into, into that world and what you did over there, but also some like I said, some really great words of wisdom and, and life advice for anyone that's kind of got that real. Um, Burning passion outside of, of what they do, and how you can kind of blend the two in, into something wonderful. So, um, Andy, you've been a, a great guest today. Um, it's, it's been an amazing story that you've told. Um, so, thanks very much for for being on the show. It's it's been a pleasure to have
1: you as a guest. Not at all. Well, look, it's been it's been great to be here and share some of the stories. I you know, I I, uh, I had to dig deep for some of those stories. It's been a reasonable amount of time before I uh, before I, I I told them again. So. Um... Thank you very much for some, uh, bringing back some good memories.
0: Well, you told them like it was just yesterday. <laughs> well, Andy, and just before we, we finish off, actually, is, uh, if, if anyone wants to find out some more information uh, about Tusk or any of
1: the other projects in Africa, is, is there any uh, direction you could point them in? Well, look, there, I mean, there's a, there's a couple of things. Um, go and have a look at the Tusk uh, Tusk Trust uh, website. It's a fantastic website. It's got a lot of great information. Um, it'll um, it'll tell you um, quite a lot about some of the big issues facing. Um, african wildlife at the moment um uh, or you know get in you can get in touch, in touch with me uh via um via apex if it's if it's the apex um, and the esg rating side of things which you're interested in so um uh yeah but for, certainly for the wildlife i'd go and have a look at the tusk website and uh, you can you can learn a lot from that fantastic well again andy thanks for being on the show today not at all thank
0: you very much john Thanks for listening today and thanks again to our sponsors Smartstream who have supported us through this series along with their clients and even as I've discovered myself, frontline workers through donations they've made during this period. If you like what you've heard today, make sure you subscribe and keep an eye out each week for new episodes or listen in on globalcustodian.com. Thanks again.